Genesis. And what we notice is that, um, that God creates humanity on the sixth day. God, he spends five days speaking things into existence, and then there's these, these time delineations, and it's on the sixth day that God takes uh, some dirt, mounts it up, and breathes life into it, and, and man uh, is created on the sixth day. And what's important about that is to notice that, that one, uh, when uh, humanity enters the picture, the work of God is done. Like, uh, God has spent five days creating the whole universe, and, and, and when humanity enters the picture and draws its, its, its first breath, the work of creation is done. And, and, and on the seventh day, day God, God rested. rested. So, so what we need to see is that, that, that humanity enters into that first day of existence into a state of rest. The work was done, and where humanity begins is in a state of rest. We see this in new creation as well. In new creation, God sends his son to live for us and, uh, and, and to live the life we, we couldn't live, but to ultimately go to, to the cross. And on, on Friday, he dies. On Saturday, he's in the tomb. But on Sunday, he rises. And the work of redemption is done. The, the last words from the cross, it is finished. The work is complete. It's done. And we as Christians, where we begin, where we start from is a place where the work is complete and we enter into this, this state of rest. It's, it, that's our starting point. Uh, last week, uh, Nick, um, uh, he, he was in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the most important passages of all of Scripture. In 2 Samuel 7, we see what's something called the Davidic Covenant. Um, but, but where 2 Samuel 7 begins is it begins with David sitting. And he's sitting in, in his palace on his throne, uh, but the word that's used in that passage is this word yeshab, uh, this, this Hebrew word, and it means to sit or to dwell. And what we see him, he's doing, he's, he's sitting or dwelling, and he's thinking about what he's going to do for God. He's thinking about what, what he's going to accomplish for God in, in the building of, of a temple. And what happens then is, is God sort of shows up through the prophet uh, uh, Nathan and, and communicates three things to David. First, um, David, I don't need a temple. Secondly, I, I will have a temple, but you're not the one that's going to build it. And third, instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And this is the Davidic covenant, which promises David a dynasty, that a line of kings would come from him. But where 2 Samuel 7 ends is with David once again sitting. Yeshab, he's dwelling on what God is going to do for him. He starts with thinking about what he's going to do for God. It ends with him dwelling on what God is going to do for him. It's this, this, this picture of the work that God will do for him, and, and it's this beginning of rest. This morning, I, I would like for us to begin there, to begin in this, this, this sitting in this, this dwelling in this idea of the work being accomplished for us. And the way that we're going to do that is by beginning uh, this morning by partaking of communion. The elements are uh, in trays on the inside of each row, and if you would uh, pass them down now. Um, the words GF in the middle, some of them say GF, that stands for gluten-free, not God food, um, just in case. Uh, it's gluten-free, um, but uh, uh, just know that as we partake of communion this morning, 
Um, you do not have to partake of this. Um, those of you who have a relationship with Christ, we invite you to partake of this freely. Uh, but there's lots of reasons for not partaking, and so nobody's noticing if you are or not, okay? But we're going to begin with, with communion in the state of, of what God has done for us. We saw this word yeshab, right? Um, uh, Jesus, uh, in, in John 14, 2, he picks up this idea of dwelling. And in John 14, 2, he's telling his disciples about the dwelling place that they'll have in heaven. All right? and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, what, what will it be like to dwell with God in heaven? And uh, we know that what Jesus has done through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, that, is, that, that has inaugurated the kingdom of God that's coming. Um, but one day it'll be consummated. We'll see what John saw in the book of Revelation, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and, and King Jesus reigning and ruling from, for, for, forever. Um, but, but there's this dwelling that, that will take place. Uh, Nick talked about this last week, that the, the desire of God has always been and the trajectory of, of, of re, 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 redemption has always been with this idea that, that God would dwell with his people and that we would dwell with him. And, and some people take this to mean something that it shouldn't mean. And so I wanna read uh, John 14 too, out of the New King James uh, version where it says, in my father's house are many mansions. And he goes on to say, and I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. Now, the, the, the Greek word there is mone. It's, it's the, the Greek equivalent of yeshab. It means dwell. And in the New King James Version, the word mansion, it sort of puts a different picture in your mind, doesn't it? Um, and some people have taken that picture and gone a direction you shouldn't go. Uh, there's uh, one uh, website called um, raptureready.com. And uh, the, the people behind this website are, are making the argument that, um, that your dwelling place in heaven, uh, your housing situation in heaven, it, it directly corresponds to the life that you lived on earth. That uh, your, your, your dwelling place in heaven um, is more about what you do for God than what God has done for you. And so based on uh, how good of a person you were, what you did for God, that's the, the kind of house you'll live in in heaven. So um, uh, just, just for fun, uh, there's a picture of uh, a castle. And under the castle, it, it, reads, it reads this. This is the super saint mansion. This is the home of those rare folks who totally commit themselves to the task of advancing the kingdom of God. So are you a super saint? If so... That's what you're going to live in, according to raptureready.com. Uh, then, then there's a, another uh, mansion. This is the widow's might mansion. Uh, Jesus' example of the poor widow outgiving wealthy men proved that it may not be so obvious who will be greatly blessed with riches in heaven. Not too bad a looking spot. Here's another one. This is the God-fearing mansion. The Bible repeatedly declares to us that God will someday pointedly ask each of us to give an account of the good deeds we've accomplished in our life on earth. This type of mansion is for people that wisely acted on God's warning. Profound words. Next. Uh, this is the average Christian mansion. Uh, the average Christian mansion in heaven, even the average believer will enjoy living quarters that will be elegant by earthly standards. Now, I don't know about you, but that looks pretty darn good, so maybe shooting for average is where you should be. <laughs> Just shoot for average. Um, the, the next one, uh, the struggling believer mansion. 
This home is for people who made it into heaven by the skin of their teeth. It's far better to live as a pauper in heaven than to face the alternative. Profound. Uh, Next, the spiritually immature mansion. Many Christians fail to fully mature in their faith because these folks cling to juvenile ways. A playhouse would be a fitting home for them. All eternity, and you can't even stretch out. All right, next one. Uh, This is the wood, hay, and stubble mansion. This is the dwelling place for those individuals who did everything in life for their own glory. Many high-minded preachers would easily fit into this category. I'd better watch out. (laughs) Next, uh, the pew warmer mansion. One of the saddest groups of people in heaven will be those who never did anything beyond going to church every Sunday. They had the knowledge of the truth, but they never did anything with it. How ashamed will you feel for all eternity? especially if your house, if this is you and your house is next to the varsity level mansion, the super spiritual guy at the beginning, all eternity having to look at your neighbor's castle. How sad, how sad. Lastly, the quitter mansion. This is a home that will never be lived in because the person slated for this lot was a believer in name only. Angels began to build him a mansion, but they stopped work when it was clear the client had no intention of fulfilling his commitment. Um, it's a good thing we don't get our theology from the internet, right? The, the, the notion uh, that, that your dwelling place, that, that your, your living situation in heaven directly corresponds to what you do is, is something no scholar worth their, 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 their salt would, would say. Heaven is not, what, not about what you do. It's not about what you've accomplished. It's about what Christ has accomplished for you. Um, one commentator on John 14, John Gill, he, he says this. Um, Christ is saying this in John 14 too, partly to reconcile the minds of his disciples to his departure from them and partly to strengthen their hope of following him thither. Since it was his father's and their father's house, whether he was going and in which are many mansions, which means abiding or dwelling places, mansions of love, not square footage, mansions of peace, joy, and rest, which always remain and there are many of them which does not design different degrees of glory, for since the saints are all loved with the same love, bought with the same price, justified with the same righteousness, and are equally the sons of God, their glory will be the same. But it denotes fullness and sufficiency of room for all his people. What Jesus is saying is that it is what I have done for you that provides this dwelling place for you. It's not about what you do. See, religion is about what you do for God. And, and, and Jesus does the work for us. And this is where I want us to, to begin the message this morning, is resting, sitting, dwelling on this reality of what he has done for us. That the Son of God, and he came, he, he took on flesh for us, and he lived this righteous life for us. And he takes that righteous life to the cross to atone for our sin for us. And he dies for us. And God the Father raises him from the dead for us. And, and he ascends into heaven to intercede for us. And then he sends his spirit to live in us. Like what God has done for us. This is the beginning place. This is the starting spot for us as Christians. And for us to begin this morning, to dwell in this for a moment. We hold in your hands these, these symbols of, of what Christ did for you. And that piece of bread, his body given for you. And that cup, his blood poured out for you. And because of his sacrifice, we get to dwell with him. 
So what I'm going to ask you to do now is, is to sit in the silence, and when you're ready, partake of, of these elements. But it's going to be silent. I think one of the, the biggest enemies to our spiritual life is distraction. I think we are so used to, to filling every second, every moment of our lives with, with noise or with, with screens or with something. And, and I think that this is a tool of Satan to, to get us from ever sitting in the reality of what we have because of Christ Jesus. And if we forget what we have been given because of Christ Jesus, we forget our identity, we forget our purpose. And so I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna give you silence to hold these symbols in your hand and sit and what Christ has done for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your actions toward us. That your great love spent toward us and how this changes our identity. God, I pray that we'd be reminded that we have a new identity because of it and you would remind us of a new purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, I'll come back. So this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you could turn there now. But as I said, uh, 2 Samuel 7, it began with David uh, sitting in, in, in his palace, sitting and thinking about what he's going to do for God, and the chapter ends with him sitting, knowing what God is now going to do from, for him. And so how will David respond from this, this, this place of faith that God is giving him on which to stand about what God is going to do for him, uh, how will David respond? And so that's what chapter 8 uh, really begins to, 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 to show us. Uh, and so if you will, chapter 8, verse 1, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezar and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Batah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezar, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezar, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him. For Hadadezar had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord 
gave victory to David wherever he went. Uh, it's really important to, to see verse 6 and 14 and, and allow them to stand out uh, from the chapter. If, if you highlight, if you underline your Bibles, those are the key ones to, to underline. It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, and it's repeated. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So, 2 Samuel 7, the beginning, there's David. He's resting in, thinking about, dwelling on what he's going to do for God. God shows up. At the end of chapter 7, David is now resting in, dwelling on what God has done for him. And it's from this this place of faith that now he launches out to do, to act, using the gifts that God has given him in the power that God has given him. And and, and, and it's the power of God. We need to see these, these two verses stand out from the page and recognize that the victory that David got was victory from God. It's, it's God's victory. God's the one that made it happen. God's the one who, who brought it about. The victory belongs to God and all the credit should go to him. It's not his own identity that he's standing on. David is standing on God's identity for him. So the victory belongs to God. Now the other thing to, to see about this chapter is that this is not um, a chronological narrative uh, where these things are all happening at once chronologically in the same group of time. Instead, this is um, a narrative that's formed cumulatively from other uh, 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 places and times. Um, We've actually already seen part of this fulfilled. Some of it's gonna happen uh, later on. It's repeated. But what this is is that the the author of 2 Samuel, he's he's organizing this geographically speaking. There's, There's a geographic picture here. You need to read this with map in hand to understand what 2 Samuel or the author is, is driving at here. So notice, in verse one it says, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. You look at a map and you ask, where's, where's Philistia? Where, Philistia? Well, it's to the west. So God gives David victory over enemies to the west. Now verse two, and he defeated Moab. It also talks about in verse 11, uh, he defeated the, the, defeated the Ammonites. These are enemies to the east. So God gives David victory over enemies to the west, now to the east. Now look at verse three and five, three through five. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. So, so Zobah and, and Syria, where are those kingdoms? To the north. So David's got victory west, east, north. Look at verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he turned from the valley, uh, striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. Enemies to the south. But what we're seeing here is a picture of God giving David victory over all the surrounding people groups at one time. There's two other people groups worth, uh, worth noting here. Um, it talks about this guy named Toy and uh, the... the, uh, the um, the place where he comes from is, is north of Aram, uh, the place called Hamath. And, uh, and this king is basically saying that this Hadadezer guy is, is his enemy and David defeated him, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he, he comes to David and he brings offerings of tribute and, and respect and honor. But there's another individual, um, the, the king of Tyre, who uh, we saw earlier, he provides uh, David with all the, the necessary equipment and, and stuff to build a house. Okay, so what, what we see is that all the nations that surround Israel at this point in time, either have been defeated militarily or have willingly aligned with David, and, and there's peace. There's a time of, of, of peace for Israel because of the giftedness of, of, of David as a warrior uh, empowered by God to go and, and, and accomplish this. So what we see is, is David, 
He's sitting in what he's going to do for God, and then he's moved into what God has done for him. From them, from there, he launches with, with God's strength and with faith in what God has done and, and with his giftedness. And what he does is, is, is he provides something for his people. And the first thing that he provides for them is peace. For, it was peace. Um, it will be Solomon who builds the temple. And it's important to understand that David, David was not the temple builder that God wanted. David was the warrior God wanted. David was, uh, he, he was made by God to kill lions and bears. He was made to kill giants and Philistines. He was, he was made to, to, to strike down Moabites and Ammonites and Rehobites and Syrians. God made David a warrior. And so David does what he was called to do and he's successful on the, the, the power and strength of God. But, but what he does blesses others. David acts on what God has done, on the gifts that God has given him, and his actions will benefit others. And they benefit others in two ways. The first is peace. This, this geographic picture of, of David subduing all the enemies, east, west, north, south, is a picture of God giving peace to Israel in a space and time in which the temple could be built. Solomon was not a warrior. Solomon never picked up a sword and rode on the back of a horse into combat. Solomon would never have to because his father was for him. Solomon could focus on building the temple. He would never have to stop construction on the temple to go fight this battle or to fight that enemy. Solomon was blessed by his father by, by having this existence of peace, this atmosphere of peace that David provided through the sword. It's the first thing that David provides for him. Secondly, uh, we see that David, uh, when he subdues these nations, he subdues lots of people who become a workforce, a labor force, that will take part in building the temple. Secondly, though, uh, through all of this tribute and, and all of what he uh, acquires through these battles, he accumulates a great deal of wealth. He amasses a large amount of wealth, but he doesn't keep it. Instead, he dedicates it to God. And we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the God's king that's described in Deuteronomy 17. He does not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So David, he's amassing a fortune, but he's not keeping it. He's dedicating it to God. And 1 Chronicles uh, 22 helps us understand this a little bit more. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded together, to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails, for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as brawn and quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number, for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. What does David do? God tells David, first of all, I don't need a temple. I'm going to have one, but you're not going to be the one that builds it. Instead, I'm going to build a house from you. And so David is in this position where he's, he's sitting on the promise of God, and from there he acts. He acts in the strength and the power of God, and he, and, he, and he benefits his people in two ways. First of all, he provides an atmosphere of peace, but now we see him, he's providing a workforce and material wealth in which to make the temple happen either to, to directly be used in its construction or to pay for certain elements of its construction. David is he's doing everything necessary to, to set Solomon up for success. He's equipping him to, do, to be what David can't be, the temple builder. 
And so from sitting on what God has done through the promises to David, out of faith God, uh, in God's work, David acts. And he acts to bring peace, and he acts to, 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 to supply what the temple needs for its construction. So let's attempt to put all this together. All right? Where David begins in chapter 7, he's dwelling on what he's going to do for God. He is, he's sitting in a spot where he's, he's got a very human perspective on life and worship of God. David is looking around at all the nations of the world and seeing that all the other nations have gods that they worship and those gods have temples. You know, houses, uh, since, since the fall, we've, we've needed houses in order to, to protect us from the elements, right? But we've also needed houses in order to, to tell other people who, who we think we are. We find a lot of our um, uh, structural hierarchy, so to speak, in our houses. There's a, there's a lot of uh, things that we, we, we purchase houses in order to, to show people what kind of, you know, income status we have. They're really status symbols for a lot of us, and, 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 and that's been true since then. And so here's David, and, and he's seeing all these nations that they have houses, but they have houses for their gods, their gods need protection, and their gods need to, to be surrounded by uh, opulence and grandeur and magnificence because they want to show off their God. But all of this is it's a religious practice. It's religious effort to earn. It's religious effort to appease, to get from the God that they worship love and, and provision when for us, that's already been granted. See, God is not like the gods that surrounded David's David and, and, and these other nations. We have a God who started off by loving us first. He loved us first, and so it's our response to that love that matters. We can't earn his love. We already have it. But David, he's got this very earthly understanding of what worship of God should look like. All the other nations, they have houses for their gods, so my God should have a house too. And God shows up and says, I don't need a house. David, I don't need a house built of cedar. Whoever, in, in, in all of, of, of history so far, when have I ever come to one of the Israelites' leaders and say, build me a house? It's never happened. In fact, I don't even need a tabernacle. When you think about it, the tabernacle, that portable tent that, that, was, that was carried around through the wilderness, um, what happened just before that event? Just before God in, gave instructions for the ark and the, the tabernacle to be built. What happened was, uh, they're wandering through the wilderness, they stop at this mountain, and Moses, their leader, goes up on top of the mountain, he's gone for a really long time. And the Israelites think he's dead. And so they go to his brother, and Aaron, and they say, Build, we need something to worship. We need something to bow down to. We need something to point to and say, that's my God, that's my Savior. We need something to worship. And so Aaron, he, he makes this, this golden calf, and sure enough, they start bowing down and worshiping this thing. And Moses comes down from the mountain, sees what's going on, and, and, and he intercedes on behalf of the people so that God doesn't destroy them. But what Moses says is, God, we need you to go with us. Like, we need you to be here and to show us that, that you're with us. We need you. And so what does God do? He says, all right, you, you need something to worship? Like, if, if I don't provide you something, you're just gonna turn to idols. You're gonna make idols out of your own hands. You're gonna turn to idols of, of other people's. So here's an ark, and here's a tabernacle. See, God doesn't need a house. And God didn't need the tabernacle, but we needed God to have a tabernacle because we thought it would keep us in relationship with him. Solomon builds the, the, the temple. 400 years later, it's destroyed. Why? Because the temple didn't work in keep, keeping people faithful. The temple didn't work in keeping people faithful to, to, to worship. In fact, Solomon, within his own lifetime after building the temple, turns away from God and worships other things and other other gods it didn't work 
So the Babylonians came in and, and got a, handed his people over to the Babylonians. The temple's destroyed. Then a little while later, a remnant is allowed to rebuild it. And under Herod the Great, it's expanded and it becomes one of the wonders of the earth. Wonders of the world, so magnificent in its opulence. And, it, and Jesus, he preached from there. He taught from there. And he taught about the kingdom of God. But he also taught and pointed towards a better temple. And as Nick reminded us last week, when Jesus went to the cross and when he died, that veil in the, in the, in the, in the temple was torn from top to bottom. See, in giving us a temple... It's not something that God needed. It's something that we needed. But God condescends, and, and spiritually speaking, he sort of put himself in a box for us. But at Christ's death, not only do we have access to him, but now he has access to us. In a way, God is let out of the box. He's let out of the box. And, and, and when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to live in us, we become the box, so to speak. We become walking, talking temples of God so that the dwelling place of God is with us. You know, what's interesting is uh, in, in Revelation 21, 22, when John talks about the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth, it says there is no temple. In the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. There's no boxes. There's no walls. There's us dwelling with God in ways we can't even imagine. But let me ask you, for, for, for the purpose of application, here is David, and he's sitting on his throne, and he's sitting on, on what he can do for God. But what essentially what he wants to do is he wants to put God in a box. How do we do that? How do you and I try to put God in a box? I think in terms of our worship, I could ask probably most people in this room, and I would ask you the question, is the church people or is it a building? How many of you would say people? Most of you. And yet, how often do we treat church like a building? That we think of church in terms of a building. And we think of the worship of God in terms of a, a person you come to hear from, a program you come to participate in, a place that you gather in. And we, we put God in a box and we, 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 we consolidate him into an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And this is where God belongs. And this is God's space. And the rest of the week, that's mine. We are, are, are dwelling places of God. He's never apart from us. He's with us. If you're in Christ, he's in you. We, we, we talked about this a lot so far as we've been in 2 Samuel, that, that for David, there's this unsubmitted portion of his heart that he's willing to listen to God and do what God wants on all sorts of things, but there's this one aspect of his heart that he's holding on to, and he does not let God have that. How do we put God in a box? How do we compartmentalize our faith? How do we compartmentalize our worship of him? How have you put God in a box? I think not, not only should we see here God doesn't, doesn't need a box, but when it comes to the building of the, 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 the temple, he said to David, you're not the guy to do it. Sometimes we think that we can step in and, and be God's provider, that we, we see what God needs, and so we're going to act. Without talking to him about it, without consult, you know, uh, listening to him, we're going to give what we think God needs. There's a quote from A.W. Tozer that uh, I, I know I've shared with you before, but I'm going to share it again. Um, from Knowledge of the Holy, he writes this, a fear, I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive 
than to help deliver God for the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. How many of us think that, that we know what God needs better than he does and we can step in and provide it? How many of us are living our lives that way? Second question to help us to apply what we're looking at. Are you dwelling? Are you sitting? Are you resting in the accomplished work of God, especially through Jesus Christ? Is the foundation of your life what he has done for you? Is that the rock on which you stand? Or are you standing on what you do for him? Are you standing on what you can accomplish? Are you standing on, on your abilities and your gifts and, and your strength to get it done? We'll come back to that in a second. But, but are you sitting, resting, dwelling on the accomplished work of God through Jesus? Third question. Are you acting on the gifts God gave you? Um, David, he's, he's sitting in what he's going to do for God, and then he's moving into a place where uh, he's resting in what God has done for him. And from this place of faith, he's then able to act using his gifts, empowered by God to accomplish what God has, has set for him to accomplish. And he was a warrior. That was what God called him to do. What are you called to do? What has he made you to accomplish? What gifts has he given you towards that end? In Ephesians 2, some of you know verses 8 and 9, maybe by heart, but maybe don't know verse 10. It says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Maybe some of you have that memorized. By grace you have been saved, right? That's the, the rock upon which we stand. That's, that's, that's the, the cornerstone of our faith. But we don't just stay there. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you've been saved by grace, but you've also been saved for a purpose. There's, there's a purpose behind. And so David didn't sit in his palace and let God do all the fighting. He got up, picked up his sword, and went into battle using the gifts that God had given him and the power and the strength that God had given him. But he acted on faith. James says, 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. If it is faith, it will lead to action. We don't need to earn God's love. We have God's love. But how do you respond to God's love? Do you act on it? Lastly, are we equipping others to fulfill their callings? What David did benefited his people, and it benefited Solomon. David was blessed, therefore he blessed others. That what he did, he accomplished peace for his people, he accomplished the labor force and a material wealth to accomplish what he couldn't accomplish. He set Solomon up for success. David was the warrior, Solomon wasn't. Solomon was a temple builder. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of different gifts in this room. Are we setting each other up for for success and to, to carry out what God has called you to do. You know, the, one of the foundational uh, pieces of Scripture for our, our, our church is, comes from Ephesians 2, where it talks about the, the, the role of church leaders. And the role of, of church leaders is simply to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Till we all attain it. God gives leadership, not for leaders to stand up on a platform and say, look at how great my gifts are. God is really maturing me. 
The purpose of a leader is to help other people identify their gifts and their calling and to help all of us attain to spiritual maturity. And so if you're a discipler of somebody else, maybe your gifts are on display in discipling them, but are you helping them identify their gifts and what they're called to do? If you're a house church leader, is house church time about you giving a long monologue and putting display on your gifts for teaching? Or are you ever putting anybody else in a position where they can learn how to use their gift for teaching or their gift for hospitality? Like, there's so many different roles and gifts that the church has. And sometimes we as leaders, we think that we're going to do them all when what we've been called to do is equip other people to do them. As far as us as staff, as far as us as, as an elder team, are we doing that? Are we helping equip people? Are we setting other people up for success? Are we equipping, helping others to equip what their fulfilled calling is? I'll conclude, let's begin to wrap all this up. Here's David, and he's, he's resting on what he's gonna do for God. And God, by his grace, moves him to a place where he gets to stand on what God has done for him. And this is the spot that we began this morning, and this is the spot I want us to end. Resting in the accomplished work of God. This this Yeshab, dwelling in what God has done for us. Today is Sunday, and I know that you probably have your to-do lists. You're thinking about the week ahead and you're thinking about all the things that need to get done from from laundry to grocery shopping to getting the oil changed or whatever is on your list. There's this long list of things you need to do. And here's a challenge. Can you today, at least for part of today, can you sit and what God has done for you. Can you put aside the book, put aside the media players, put aside your, 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 your apps and your screens? Can you sit and what he's done for you. I, I, the older I get, the, the more I know that, that Sabbath and silence and solitude and prayer are so valuable to feeding this aspect of, of life for us. The older I get, the more I recognize that my identity needs to be found less in my performance, less in what I accomplish, less in the results that I get, and it needs to be found in what Christ has done for me. To sit in what Christ has done for me. To find my identity in that. My hope for us today is as you walk out of here today that you, you'll, 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 you may be walking, but sit in this. Yesterday, uh, my son had a baseball game. It was a championship game. And his team went the whole season undefeated. And, uh, and they went into the championship game hoping obviously to win. Uh, but They lost. And uh, unfortunately, because some of the kids had, never, had not experienced loss before, uh, this was devastating. Um, you know, when, when you begin to stand on, on your identity as, uh, for what Christ has done for you and not on your identity of what you accomplish, what you're essentially saying to God is, I'm, I'm willing to not be the star of my story. I'm, not, I'm willing to not be the hero of my story. And what that means is that, that any victory that's accomplished through me, ultimately it's God's victory, right? If, if your foundation is him and your supply is him and your power is him, then any victory that comes through you is his, right? And, and, and that may seem kind of like bad news. We don't get to be the stars. But the flip side of that coin is what happens to our defeat if our foundation's on him? You're going to lose. You're going to fail, and, and if your identity is found in your successes and failures, that means that that could devastate you. 
so here's this, this team yesterday, and, and they lose. And a couple of these boys couldn't handle it. There was, there was one young man who uh, he, he began to, to, to scream and to throw his batting helmet and to pick up a bat and start hitting things, and he cursed out his mom, and he, he just melted down because he lost. He was used to being the hero. He was used to being the one on top who's hitting the home runs and to, who's catching the balls, and, and he's, but he, he made some serious errors in the game and some serious mistakes, and he owned that. Like, it, it just, it, it, it was horrible to watch. There was another uh, young man. He, he's the, he was the final out. It was the top of the last inning. Our team was down by two. Uh, there was two outs, and he steps up to the plate. And he, he receives a pitch, and he swings strike one. And he steps out of the batter's box, and tears are just streaming down his face. And in that moment, he believes that this loss is going to be on him. He thinks that the whole game is coming down to him and his at-bat, and he is owning all the pressure and the weight of that. And he steps back into the batter's box, and he swings again, strike two. And he comes back out of the batter's box, and he's just sobbing. At this point, the other team is saying, it's okay. It's all right. And he gets back into the batter's box, and again, strike three. And he hits the ground, and he starts bawling. That young man just felt the weight of the failure of a game because that's what his identity was in. No, we may not fall to the ground and ball every time we fail, but how many of us are crushed by the weight of our failures? Destroyed by our lack of success It may be hard to share the glory that God deserves for your victories. It, it, it may seem like, you know, a hard pill to swallow, that, that your successes in life really belong to him. But you know what? It's a very freeing thing to recognize that your failures and disappointments also don't define you, don't make you. They don't tell you who your, what, what your reality is or what your identity is in. My hope for us today, can, can you sit in what Christ has done for you? I know that uh, there's a lot of pressure for sermons to have application points where you go do this and you go do that. and you go. I don't want you to do anything today, but sit in what Christ has done for you. Heavenly Father, Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your gospel in which we stand. Thank you for doing all the work. And you deserve all the credit. Lord, to you be the glory. Lord Jesus, you deserve to be king. You've earned the right. And there should be no unsubmitted parts of my heart and you rightly have access or should have access to every moment of my day. Help me to surrender to you by the power of your spirit and help us to be a people 
to find our identity solely in you and to find that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.